So if you're, if you're new, if it's your first time with us, um, let me let you know what we're doing right now. This year, we're doing something called the whole story. This is something we've never done before. We are going through the entire story of the Bible in a year. We've broken the whole story of scripture down into 14 different series. And we started this in February. We're gonna finish it in December. And we are in series two. We're actually ahead of schedule right now, which is amazing. And so uh, we started it again in February, went through some of the first bits of the book of Genesis, and now we're wrapping that up right now. We are in a series today, actually we're gonna wrap it up, called Broken Homes. And so if you've been here for the last few weeks, we've been talking about some of the, the earliest families and their stories that we have in the Bible. These are the people that God has chosen to use. These are the people that God has chosen to show himself to the entire world through, and you would think that he would pick people who have it together. It's actually something I hear a lot. There'll be people who will sort of disqualify themselves from following God or maybe even going to church or, or getting baptized or taking some step in their faith. And the idea is like, once I have it all together, then I'll do that. And the, the mistake we make when we think that is that we think God is looking for people who have it all together. We think that God is like, man, I would love to use you. The problem is you're not very useful right now. You've got some stuff, you've got some issues. You're a little crazy, you're a little messed up. So why don't you go deal with yourself why don't you go fix yourself up a little bit and then we'll talk. And that's, if you read the Bible, you'll understand quickly, that is not how God operates. God is not looking for people who have it all together. He's definitely not looking for people who think they have it all together. God picks these people and he gives them these promises and they are a broken mess. Story after story that we have of these families in the book of Genesis, it's just more family drama, more brokenness than you could even imagine. We joked last week, there's this phrase in our culture, hold my beer, which basically says, let me try to outdo your stupidity. And it's almost like they're playing a game of that. Like one family's messed up and the other family's like, hold my beer, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do even better. It's crazy. But it teaches us some really important things. And this is so valuable. Number one, it teaches us how amazing and credible our scriptures are. I was having a conversation beforehand this morning talking about some of these stories that we're gonna to read today. And it's like, these are the kind of stories that if they happened in your family, you would all have a family meeting and say, we never speak of this again. <laughs> no one hears about this. This fades into obscurity. We take this to our graves, right? That's what you would do. Especially if you were trying to you know, put on a good front and impress people and convince people that you're the ones that know the real God because look at your lives and how wonderful and together they are. Like you would never tell these stories and yet these stories make it into our scriptures because the Bible doesn't lie to us. The Bible isn't trying to sell us anything. It's not trying to impress us. That's one of the powers of scripture is that it speaks to human nature in a way that is so genuine, authentic, and raw that we can trust it because it tells us the truth. Number two, it reminds us that God uses broken people. The Bible is not the story of amazing men and women doing great things for God. It is a story of broken people who have a God that is so incredible and so amazing and patient and loving and forgiving and powerful that he will use anyone no matter how broken their lives are. And that's really encouraging for me and I hope it's encouraging for you as well. Unless of course you're one of the ones who has it all together, then you're good. <laughs> but also in these stories, and this is maybe the most amazing part to me, is that you read these people's lives and it's so messed up and it's so broken. And yet you find these little nuggets of, of powerful, profound truth that you can learn from. 
You end up learning from people who are making worse mistakes than you've probably ever made. You see these qualities rise up in these people that have this incredible way of compensating for all their failures. And it reminds us that there are certain things, there are certain qualities that we can possess as human beings that can compensate for all of our mess in really amazing ways. And so even though their lives are just brokenness on display, we can learn from them. And so each week we've looked at at a different person that this promise of God is gonna come through. We started with, with Abram or Abraham. God makes him a promise in Genesis chapter 12. Verses two through three. He says to him, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. This ultimately happens through Jesus. Every family on the earth is gonna be blessed through you. And Abram believed. He was a believer. He was a man of faith and his life was messy and broken, but he had faith. And when God asked him to go, he went And that compensated for his brokenness in incredible ways. So we're challenged to be believers. And then last week, we looked at Jacob, who is the worst. We spent a lot of time. If you weren't here last week, you can watch that message, listen to that message. Jacob is, he's he's the worst. But he, he was someone who wrestled with God. He was a wrestler. And God ends up changing his name to Israel. Israel becomes the namesake of his nation. And it means to wrestle with God. It doesn't mean to love God, to obey God, to follow God, to honor God. It means to wrestle with God. And that gives all of us permission to be wrestlers, to wrestle with God. And even when when you're upset and angry and you feel like God's let you down or he wasn't there in a way that you thought he would be, you're confused, that's okay. Just don't let go of him. You can wrestle with God. In fact, God likes, he likes wrestlers. And so today we're gonna look at some of Jacob's family, because, because Jacob's interesting. Uh, his grandfather, Abram, had two sons. One of those children was not with his wife, and so with his wife, he only had one, and that was the son that everything in that promise had to go through. But then Isaac, his son, had, had two sons, so it's, it's kind of like a 50-50 thing, right? It's like a coin toss. It's a coin flip, and he's got Jacob and Esau, and which one's gonna be the one that God uses? And, and you think it might be Esau because he's the oldest, but ends up being Jacob. Jacob, though, ends up having 12 sons, 12, so he has options. Like, I, I got four kids, and one of my jokes is that I only need one of them to be successful. You know, it's kind of true, though, right? Like, pressure's off. I just need one of you guys to have it together enough that when we're older, you can be there for us. Jacob has 12. He's got 12, and so this promise from God that this family is gonna be used to bless all the nations of the world, that surely, of the 12, there's gotta at least be one that's a good candidate for that. And it turns out there is. In fact, Jacob is is fortunate. He has like a superstar of a son. He has this son named Joseph. And Joseph's amazing. Like actually Joseph's one of the few characters that we have in all of scripture that we don't really have a story of true failure. Like there's little things you can sort of pick apart and read between the lines, but there's not really some glaring mistake or moral failure, like he is someone that appears to have it all together. There's so many qualities about Joseph that we could, we could talk about. Joseph was a dreamer, like literally, he had dreams from God. Genesis chapter 37, verses five through eight, one night Joseph had a dream and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Oh, by the way, Joseph, his brothers didn't like him. 
Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly, my bundle stood up and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. I wonder why they didn't like it. <laughs> so again, maybe you can read between the lines and say, okay, maybe, maybe Joseph has some pride in sharing a story like that, sharing a dream. Because then he goes, I wonder what that means. But here's the thing, that story proved true. That dream, that, that happened. God was speaking to him Joseph is someone who hears from God. He's a dreamer. That's, that's amazing. Joseph is a man of character. His brothers hate him for a variety of reasons, one of those reasons being his, his dreams and the fact that his father clearly loves Joseph more than the other brothers. So they conspire. Originally, they're going to kill him, but they just decide to sell him as a slave to Egypt and, and act like he's dead and present his clothes to his father and say he's been killed by a wild animal, and, and all the while, he's out of their lives. That happens. It's a messy, broken family, like I said. But while he's there, he ends up rising through the ranks of slavery. He becomes the, basically the, the lead administrator in the household of this man named Potiphar, who's a very important man in Egypt. He's someone who works directly with Pharaoh. It's a big deal. And Potiphar has this wife, and the problem for Joseph is that not only is he talented and, and he's someone that hears from God, he's apparently very good-looking as well. And so in Genesis chapter 39... Verse six begins by saying Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. She didn't ask, she didn't request. It is a demand. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He's held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her and he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. She came, she grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. So Joseph has character. Like, it, I'm, that's a lot of character. That's resilience. He is so committed to God, so committed to doing the right thing that he resists that temptation even when it's risky for him. I mean, she literally has his clothes in her hand and he runs away so fast that the clothes stay behind. Like he's a man of, of character, he's a dreamer, he, he has character, he has wisdom. This doesn't work out well for Joseph in the short term because she gets so angry that he has refused her that she accuses him of rape. And she uses the fact that she has his, his clothing as evidence and so he's thrown in prison. And while he's in prison, some important people from the government are also thrown in prison. You know, that actually happens sometimes. And uh, so I don't know why. Sorry. I'm literally not commenting on anything happening in the world at all right now. So I just realized as I said that, someone's going to take that and think I'm talking about... No, no, we're good. We'll talk about politics later. Um, so... So while he's in prison, these men are there and, and he interprets their dreams and it, it proves true. And so years later, Pharaoh has this dream and it's a really frightening dream. And one of these guys who's back in the palace realizes, oh, I know someone who can interpret your dream. And so Pharaoh summons Joseph. Joseph interprets his dream and it's basically this warning saying, hey, uh, there's about to be this massive famine and everyone's gonna starve unless we take action now and we prepare for it. And so this is what happens. Genesis chapter 41, after he interprets Pharaoh's dreams, it says, therefore, Joseph speaks, Pharaoh should find an intelligent and wise man and put him in charge of the entire land of Egypt. 
Pharaoh should appoint supervisors over the land and let them collect one-fifth of all the crops during the seven good years that are coming. Have them gather all the food produced in the good years that are just ahead. Bring it to Pharaoh's storehouses, store it away, and guard it so there will be food in the cities. That way there will be enough to eat when the seven years of famine comes to the land of Egypt. Otherwise, this famine will destroy the land. Joseph's suggestions were well received by Pharaoh and his officials. So Pharaoh asked his officials, can we find anyone like this man so obviously filled with the spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one else is as intelligent or as wise as you are. You will be in charge of my court and all my people will take orders from you. Only I, sitting on my throne, will have a rank higher than yours. So Joseph is a dreamer. He has character. He has self-control. He's a man who has clear talent. He's handsome and well-built. That's a plus. And he happens to be so wise that Pharaoh says, you are the wisest man in this kingdom and I'm gonna make you in charge of everyone but me and you'll be the one that runs things in Egypt. Joseph is a superstar. So here we, we finally have someone. We finally have someone who fits the bill. God has made this promise to Abraham. I'm gonna bless the whole world through you, through your family. I'm gonna bless everybody. I'm gonna gonna bring myself into this world, reveal myself to the world, and surely Joseph is the guy because who could be better than him? But oddly enough, Joseph isn't the son that the promise of God actually goes through. Like Jesus does not come from Joseph's line even though Joseph is awesome. Like he's, he's the man, he's great. He's not the one that God ultimately uses to fulfill this prophecy about blessing the entire world through this, this family line. That would actually belong to one of his brothers, a man named Judah. Judah's name actually becomes synonymous with, with God. Years later, after Israel has become a nation, they have a, a split. And they've, they've really gone away from following God and the part of Israel that no longer worships God and, and they've started worshiping all these idols, they're not being faithful to God at all, they, they remain called Israel. But the part of, of Israel that splits off and stays faithful to God longer, that nation is called Judah. In fact, the Jewish faith is also known as Judaism, which comes from Judah's name. So Judah's name, Judah's apparently so important, his name becomes synonymous with the worship of God. It's not Joseph, this amazing superstar that's the one that everything works through, It's, it's Judah. And so maybe Judah is just better. Maybe Judah's just better than even even Joseph. I mean, if Joseph is that good, that amazing, that wise, that talented, that well-built and handsome, then then Judah must be like even better. Well, let's, let's find out. The very first moment we have Judah step into the story is actually the moment that Joseph is about to be killed by his brothers. They've kidnapped him. They're they're hiding him in in basically like a deep well. They're figuring out what they're they're gonna do with him and they wanna kill him. And this is where we see Judah step up to the plate. Here we go. Genesis 37, verse 26. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother? That's really wise. We'd have to cover up this crime. Instead of hurting him, Let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood, and his brothers agreed. So that's that's our introduction to Judah. Let's not kill our brother. Guys, think about that. That would be blood on our hands. We don't want that. Let's just sell him. You know, then he's alive. That's a, a good thing for him. And then we have more money. That's a good thing for us. 
So, so far in the whole Joseph versus Judah debate, Joseph is clearly winning. It's not a good start for Judah. But thankfully, most of of Genesis chapter 38 is actually all about Judah. And so maybe Judah is going to, to do better. Like there's no way it could get worse, right? You couldn't go worse than selling your brother into slavery. But remember, this family takes hold my beer very seriously. So let's read Genesis 38. Now here's the setup. Judah has some sons and his oldest son has married a woman named Tamar, but then his son has died and they don't have any kids. And in their culture, and this is, again, we're talking ancient culture, 3,000 plus years ago, really messy, really weird. And sometimes we read things, we're like, that's, ugh. And just be grateful that you don't live back then. Okay, that's the takeaway. Different time, different world. In their culture, if, if your older brother died and hadn't had any kids with his wife, you then married her so that you could hopefully carry on the family line through your brother. Like your brother's family name could carry on through you. And so uh, a younger brother of, of, his, uh, of Tamar's husband uh, marries her, but he, he's not into her, and so it doesn't really work. And so basically, Judah just tells Tamar, hey, look, go and, and live as a widow, and I have a younger son who's not old enough to get married yet, but once he's old enough, I'll have him marry you. And that never ends up happening. He, he basically just forgets about her, ignores his promise. And so she is, is living in obscurity as, as a widow. She's not being taken care of. It's a really bad situation. Okay, so here we go. We picked it up in Genesis chapter 38, verse 11. Judah says to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, go back to your parents' home, remain a widow until my son Shelah is old enough to marry you. But Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Shelah would also die like his, his other two sons. Oh yeah, the, the other brother that she married died too. So he thinks she's bad luck. So, Again, messy, broken families. If you think you have family drama, just read the Bible. It's so encouraging. It's not that bad. So he doesn't intend to do this. He's lying to her, right? He's giving her false hope. It says, so Tamar went back to live in her father's home. Some years later, Judah's wife died. After the time of mourning was over, Judah and his friend Harah, the Adalamite, went up to Timrah, or Timnah, there's so many words here that I'm mispronouncing, to supervise the shearing of his sheep. Someone told Tamar, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Tamar was aware that Shelah had grown up, but no arrangements had been made for her to come and marry him. So she changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat beside the road at the entrance to the village of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute since she had covered her face. So he stopped and propositioned her. I was like, what could be worse than selling your brother into slavery? We're about to find out. Let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law. How much will you pay to have sex with me, Tamar asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, Judah promised. But what will you give me to guarantee that you will send the goat, she asked. What kind of guarantee do you want, he replied. She answered, leave me your identification seal and its cord and the walking stick that you're carrying. It was basically like your driver's license. It's like some way to identify you. Okay, so Judah gave them to her. Then he had intercourse with her and she became pregnant. Afterwards, she went back home, took off her veil and put on her widow's clothing as usual. Later, Judah asked his friend Herah, the Adalamite, to take the young goat to the woman and to pick up the things he had given her as his guarantee. But Herah could not find her. So he asked the men who lived there, where can I find the shrine prostitute who is sitting beside the road at the entrance to a name? We've never had a shrine prostitute here, they replied. Just your classic shrine prostitute mix up, you know. So Hurrah returned to Judah and told him, I couldn't find her anywhere. 
And the men of the village claimed they've never had a shrine prostitute there. Then let her keep the things I gave her, Judas said. I sent the young goat as we agreed, but you couldn't find her. We'd be the laughing stock of the village if we went back again to look for her. Yeah, that's, that's what to worry about in this scenario. That's the thing to focus on. Okay. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has acted like a prostitute. And now because of this, she's pregnant. Bring her out and let her be burned, Judah replied. So again, it's not looking good for Judah. And look, guys, I know, I want a quick side note. I know as we read these stories, they're shocking. Keep in mind, this is one of the most amazing things about the Bible, is it tells us the ugly, real truth. Again, who would keep stories like this in their family line? Who would, who would make sure that future generations remember this? It's one of the most incredible things about our scriptures. They just, they do not lie to us. But this is messy. Like what could be worse than selling your brother as a slave? If this isn't worse, it's a tie. Like this is, this is really bad. So we have this, this man, Joseph, and he's amazing. He's, he's character, he's, he's incredible, he's godly. He hears from God, he's wise. And, and we've got Judah and he sells his brother as a slave and he, he impregnates his own daughter-in-law albeit accidentally. And yeah, right, like, as if that makes it better. I don't think it does. And he's the, he's the one that this promise of Abraham is gonna go through. Like, he's the one who, whose name is gonna become synonymous with following God, Judaism, the tribe of Judah. Jesus is often called the Lion of, of Judah. This is actually the lowest moment in his life. But as we're about to find out, the most important moment in his life. Because for all of this mess, for all of this brokenness, there is a lot there. There's a lot there. There's about to be a turn. There's about to be a turn in his story that's going to change things and it's going to change him. Let's pick it up. Genesis 38, verse 25. But as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Judah recognized them immediately and said, she is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Shalah. And Judah never slept with Tamar again. It's a big statement. He says, she is more righteous than I am. He spares her life, never sleeps with her again. For the first time in, in his story, he does some semblance of the right thing, but there is a humility there that we see bubble up in, in Judah when he says, she is more righteous than I am. Abraham was the believer. And Jacob was the wrestler. Judah, I would call him the, the owner. Judah owns it. He, he owns his failure. He calls it what it is. He owns his mistake. And he does everything he can to make it right. And that is actually an incredibly rare quality. It's actually hard to find people who will, who will own it, if you know what I mean. Like when most people are confronted with with some mistake, some failure, the human tendency is to deflect, to blame. I mean, Judah could have said, oh, it's not my fault. Like she, 
She was dressed like a shrine prostitute on the side of the road, like she trapped me. It's her fault. He could have said that. But he doesn't. He says, she is more righteous than I. He, he owns it. He doesn't deflect. He doesn't excuse. He doesn't make himself out to be the victim. He just says, I've messed up. She's more righteous than I am. This is on me. It's an incredibly rare quality. One of my, one of my favorite things is when something in pop culture nails human nature, like just gets, gets it so right, I don't know if you guys, uh, there's always a large group of people who have watched the show The Office, if you're in a room, or you guys, how many of you are familiar with the show The Office? The Office is you know, a really popular show, okay. Um, I'm not advocating that you watch The Office, I'm just saying that I, I have. And uh, there's this one episode of The Office, it's my favorite episode, and I'm going to spoil it for you, so if you're like, we're holding out to watch The Office, then just cover your ears or whatever. Um, there's this one episode where Michael, who's the manager of The Office, has this idea that he thinks is brilliant. And he's going to give these, this big discount to a client. And it backfires because the discount's way too big. He, he messes some things up. It's, it's a whole funny story. And come to find out, his boss is, is going to come in to see him. And his boss seems pretty upset. And so he convinces another one of his employees to take the fall for him, to convince his boss that it was his idea. That way, when the boss comes, that guy will get fired and, and not Michael. But the boss comes, and, and it turns out he's not mad. He's actually excited because... The client was so amazed by the discount that they're going to give even more business to the company, and so he wants to shake the hand and celebrate whoever's idea this was, but Michael has convinced this other guy to say it was my idea, and now Michael's mad because this guy is getting celebrated, and it was really his idea, and so he's in this, you know, funny situation. And there's this moment where he's, he's like trying to convince his boss that actually it was his idea, and his boss is confused because you said it was his idea, and what's going on? And he, his boss looks at Michael, and it's one of the most amazing just boil it down to how human nature often works statements I've ever heard. He says, Michael, what do you want? And Michael just says, point blank, I want all of the credit and none of the blame. <laughs> and that's, I think it's so profound. I want all of the credit and none of the blame. And that is what most people are looking for. Most people are, are perfectly happy to own success. They, they want to own the, the good stuff in life. They want to own the moments where they shine. They want to own the good decisions. They want to own the wisdom but they don't want to own the failures and they don't want to own the mistakes. When it comes to that stuff, it's like it was someone else's fault or deflected or we minimize it. But Judah is a true owner. He owns it all. And this moment we find changes Judah when he becomes an owner, even of his deepest failures. You fast forward in the story a little bit, this famine that Joseph discerned happens and Judah and his family, his brothers, his father Jacob, all their family, they're, they're starving. But they find out that Egypt has food. And so they go to Egypt and they see Joseph, but they don't know that it's Joseph. They have no reason to, to think he would be there and would have risen to some position in government. And he's dressed like an Egyptian. And so they don't recognize him at all, but he recognizes them. But he doesn't see his little brother, Benjamin. I talked about this a little bit last week. He doesn't see Benjamin. And so he says, okay, uh, I think you guys are spies. I think you're spies. I think you're here to, to spy us out. He's actually testing them. He wants to see if maybe they've changed. He says, so why don't you go bring, bring Benjamin here? And he takes one of the brothers, Simeon, and he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put him in prison. 
unless you bring Benjamin, this youngest brother of yours, to prove to me that you're telling the truth about your family. So they go back, they try to get Jacob to let Benjamin come, but Jacob's like, no, I don't love you guys, but I still love Benjamin. I used to love Joseph, now I have Benjamin. He's the only one I have left. We talked about that last week. It's awful and horrible, but he will not let Benjamin go. So they're just, they're just there. Simeon's in, in Egypt, apparently in prison. Jacob's fine with that. And they're trying to just hold out. But it gets to the point where they have no food at all. And so they've, they've got to go back. They have to go back. They have to convince their father. They have to convince their father to let Benjamin go. And we pick this up in Genesis chapter 43. When the grain they had bought from Egypt was almost gone, Jacob said to his sons, go back and buy a little bit more food. But Judah said, the man was serious when he warned us. You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you send Benjamin with us, we will go down and buy more food. But if you don't let Benjamin go, we won't go either. Remember, the man said, you won't see my face again unless your brother is with you. Why were you so cruel to me, Jacob moaned? Why did you tell me? Why did you tell him that you had another brother? The man kept asking us questions about our family, they replied. He asked, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? So we answered his questions. How could we know he would say, bring your brother down here? Judah said to his father, send the boy with me and we will be on our way. Otherwise, we will all die of starvation. And not only we, but you and our little ones. I personally guarantee his safety. You may hold me responsible if I don't bring him back to you. Let me bear the blame forever if that were to happen. So, so Judah now is this man who not only owns his failures, but he's willing to own responsibility. He's willing to take on ownership of his brother Benjamin's safety. Like he's a true owner. He owns his mistakes, he owns his sin, and he also owns the responsibility of his family. He's really, he's really stepped up. He's become like a leader in his family. In fact, from this point on, anytime it talks about the brothers, it just says Judah and his brothers. Like he's taken some leadership role because he's a man who's willing to own responsibility for those around him. They go to Egypt. Joseph sees them, but he's not quite sure. He still wants to test them. So he sends them away with a lot of food, but he has one of his servants put this really expensive silver cup into Benjamin's bag. And then he sends his servants out after them and they, they catch up to them. They say, hey, you're thieves. And the old brothers are like, we didn't take anything. Then, then let us search your bags, they say. And, and the brothers are like, fine. And they find the, the silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And so here's what happens. Judah explains that, that he has to let Benjamin go back to his father, even if he thinks Benjamin is guilty. He says, now, my Lord, I cannot go back to my father without the boy. Our father's life is bound up in this boy's life. If he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. We, your servants, will indeed be responsible for sending that grieving white-haired man to his grave. My Lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. Now imagine for Joseph the turnaround. Judah was the one who said, let's sell him as a slave. And now Judah is the one who says, let me be a slave on his behalf. This actually breaks Joseph and he reveals who he is and there's this reconciliation and it's a really beautiful moment. And it wouldn't have happened without Joseph, but it also wouldn't have happened without Judah because Judah has changed so much. He's become this man who, who's willing to own his mistakes. He's a man who's willing to own the responsibility of those around him, even if it means paying the ultimate price and that decision, it creates reconciliation in his family. Judah is an owner. 
And at the end of his father's life, his father comes and, and blesses each of his children. And Judah, of all the children, receives the greatest blessing. We read it in Genesis chapter 43. Actually, I'm so sorry. Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 10. Jacob is blessing his son Judah. He says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. You will grasp your enemies by the neck. All your relatives will bow before you. Judah, my son, is a young lion that has finished eating its prey. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? And this is big. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. That promise to Abraham that we read weeks ago, all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed through your family. That is directly through Judah. Jacob says, your family is gonna produce the one who will reign, who all the nations of the earth will honor. That is Jesus Christ. So Judah gets to own this blessing. And, and as, we, as, we, as we wrap this up, there's a lot there. I know we, we told a lot of the story, but we're going through the whole story of the Bible this year. So it's, it's a lot of storytelling. Go back to that, that statement in your mind, from, uh, not from the Bible, from the office. Um, I want all the credit and none of the blame. Very rarely do we have a problem owning blessings. Like if someone wants to bless you, you know, like if someone really wants to bless you, some of us have a hard time receiving generosity, right? It, maybe it's hard for us because we have pride and we do that whole like, oh, I couldn't, but like deep down inside, we're like, but I could, you know? Like, oh, no, 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 I, I couldn't. But like, that's just a nice gesture. So the person says, no, you must. I'm like, okay, fine. But like human nature at its core will receive and own a blessing. I have never given one of my children a gift that they have rejected. Never. In fact, I have to remind my children very often Maybe too often, maybe this is bad parenting, but you know, as those of you who have kids will know this, like when you feel like your kids aren't grateful for anything and they, they say something like my, like my room, and you're like, this is not your room. In fact, none of this stuff is yours. You don't own anything. I bought that, I bought that, I bought that. And then you really wish God wouldn't say that to you because that could totally apply, but whatever, you know. But like my children, I've never bought my children a gift. I've never given them a blessing that they've rejected. They are perfectly willing to own a blessing. In fact, um, my, my son Judah, who's awesome, he got baptized last Sunday. That was one, of, by the way, those of you here, thank you for that. That was like one of the biggest <laughs> blessings of my life was getting to baptize him in front of you guys. Judah really wants a dog. We don't have a dog. We have four children. There's enough, there's just enough of whatever would come along with a dog. I grew up with dogs. I know what dogs do. I like dogs. Um, one time I, I just put it out there in a message years ago that maybe dogs don't go to heaven and you would have, that was like the most controversial thing I've ever said. I had people coming at me with like pitchforks, basically. There were, this church almost split because I made like a joke about maybe dogs aren't, I mean, hey, your dogs, your, all of your dogs are in heaven. I just want you to know that every single dog <laughs> you've ever owned is in heaven. Okay, when you get to heaven, you're gonna open your door to whatever your room is and it's just gonna be filled with all the dogs you've ever had. And you're gonna have a lot of responsibility, okay? Every dog, and they all live forever, even the ones you didn't like that much. They're there, okay? Judah wants a dog. And here's the thing, I know, I know that if I, I gave him a dog, he would own it as far as the blessing. He would love the blessing of that dog. He would take that gift. He would say, this is my dog. But if I said, oh, you also have to own the responsibility, of the dog. 
eh. he, he'll own the dog, he'll rent the responsibility. That's probably the way that that will work. Like he'll say on the front end, oh yeah, I got it. But I know that he doesn't really wanna own the responsibility of all that comes with the dog. And what if, what if he makes a mistake? What if he's supposed to take the dog out and he forgets and the dog does his business in the house or, or chews something up that the dog shouldn't chew up? Is he gonna own his mistake related to the dog? Or is he gonna blame the dog? He's gonna blame the dog. Because that's how human nature tends to work. We, we wanna own the blessing, we wanna rent the responsibility, and we wanna completely and totally deflect from the mistakes. I want all the credit and none of the blame. But notice that Judah's life goes in the opposite direction of that. He begins by owning his sin. He owns his mistake. He says, she is more righteous than I. And this is very, very powerful, and it's very in line with Scripture. 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 and 16, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the Bible, the New Testament at least, says, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. And he's not saying that so that anyone around him goes, oh, Paul, you're no, you're not. You're Paul, like you're the greatest missionary in history and you wrote most of the New Testament and no, no single person has written more books of, of scripture than Paul, like come on. But Paul believed this. He's not just saying this to be hyperbolic. He believed himself to be the worst. He says, I'm the worst of them all, but God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. See, this is cool. Paul Paul owned grace like very few of us could, like very few people have, because most people who even believe in God have moments at least where like, am I really forgiven? Does he really love me? Has he really forgiven me? Or, or does that not count with my most recent mistakes? You know, maybe we feel a little bit of, of insecurity in terms of just how forgiven we are, but Paul didn't feel that at all, even though he had done some really terrible things. Paul lived owning the, the mercy, the patience, the goodness, the grace, like he owned it, it was his. And the reason Paul could own the grace fully is because he owned his sin. See, if you minimize your sin, if you minimize your sin and you say, ah, it's not that big of a deal, then basically that's like you minimizing the grace. Because that means that the grace needed to cover your sin isn't that much. But Paul didn't do that. Paul was willing to just call his sin what it is, to own it. He's the worst of them all, and that means that he now gets to own all the grace. Because if, if he's the worst of them all and it's forgiven, then God's forgiven everything. So Paul, he sets this example for us, like Judah, own your sin, own your mistakes, call it what it is. Judah started there. He didn't start by trying to own a blessing. He started by owning his failures. That's hard to do. One of the uh, unfortunate circumstances in my life being a pastor is that I have to say things on a stage on a regular basis that I don't do very well. Like, that's just hard. So last night, uh, Megan and I were having a conversation and maybe, hypothetically, it came up that I'm not the best listener. <laughs> and when, when she let me know that, in a very polite way, because I was like, what's wrong? She's like, I just don't feel listened to. Keep in mind, this is while I'm writing this message, like putting the final little tweaks on it, on you know, owning your stuff, I went, I'm a great listener. And then I tried to convince her that she's just as bad of a listener as I am if I'm a bad listener. Yeah, I know, guys, I'm talking about it, okay? Don't make that sound like I'm caught. I'm sharing this with you, all right? <laughs> and I, like, I, I went to bed, like, in that mode. I'm, I'm, a good, I'm, a good, I'm a good enough listener. 
I'm just as good a listener as she is. And then I get up this morning and I'm praying and I'm thinking through the message and I'm kind of just part of my Sunday morning thing and I'm like, oh, like idiot. I'm talking this morning about how we should own our stuff. And then last night, here I am, deflecting, minimizing, blaming. It's human nature. It's hard to own your shortcomings. But if you can, there's power. Like how powerful would it be if someone, now now sometimes there's people who lie about you, say something, you do have to reject lies. But oftentimes, people will at least identify something that there is truth in. What would it be like if someone could say to you, you know what? You're not this. And you could be like, yep, that's true. That's true. I can own that. I can own that. I can own that I'm not a great listener and I have work to do there. I can own that. I can own lots of things. And if I can own that, then I can also own the fact that I'm loved and forgiven even in, in the midst of that, right? That's powerful. Can we own our mistakes? Can we own our, our struggles, our failures, our sin, and just call it what it is? Because if we can do that, we're moving in the right direction. You know, again, we want to own the blessing, rent the responsibility, and deflect the blame. But if we start by owning the sin, well then, what about the next step? Owning responsibility. What would it be like if we owned the responsibility for our own lives? And maybe even the lives of those who depend on us. There's not that many people that do that in the world today. But man, it's powerful when you do, when you say, it's on me. It's on me. I will never forget this, and I promise I'm almost done. Worship team, you can make your way out so that I will follow through on this promise to almost be done. Years ago, when I was the youth pastor, I made a really bad mistake. It was just, uh, I I was young, and we had a, a large growing youth group, and it just wasn't as well supervised as it needed to be. And so because of that, there was just drama. And this, this thing happened between two of our students. It didn't happen here. It happened somewhere else. And it was just, it was bad. And, and it was like one of those things where I wasn't personally involved in any way. But people were mad about it and mad at, at me and, and some things with our youth group because that was their connection point was at youth group. And so, you know, that was the thing. And I, I walked into a meeting with Steve. The, uh, the former pastor here, one of the top two pastors his hands has ever had. And Steve, <laughs> there's only been two, that's the joke. I tell stupid dad jokes sometimes. Okay, I, I literally thought I was gonna get fired. I thought I was gonna get fired because there was all this drama. And even though there was nothing necessarily that I had done, also I, I wasn't, I guess, wise enough, mature enough to have noticed that there were some unhealthy dynamics. And it was just, I was like, I'm walking into this meeting like, I'm about to be fired. And Steve began the meeting by saying, Justin, I'm really sorry. And then you think what's coming next, right? Like, we're gonna go in a different direction. He says, I'm really sorry, will you forgive me? And I was like, uh, I, excuse me? He says, man, I, I looking at all that, that's, that's going on, I realize that I have not prepared you well enough for some of the the dynamics that you've got to face in this role. I should have done a better job coaching you and helping you, you know, see things this way. You don't have kids, you're young. I was in my my early 20s. You know, there's filters you just don't have as someone who doesn't have kids yet. And I I should have done a better job preparing you for some of that. I'm really sorry that you're in this situation. Will you forgive me? And I said, well, I need to think about it, Steve. Um, no, I was like, 
I was blown away by that. And see, Steve modeled for me in that moment and in many moments what it's like to own responsibility, to own it. Like he was the pastor. This was his responsibility. If it happened on his watch, he owned it. He didn't pass the buck. He didn't rent the responsibility. He took it and it blew me away. And it, it helped shape me as a leader, as someone who, can I be like that? Can I be the person that says, that's on me? What would it be like if you owned responsibility for your life? Like fully owned it. No blaming, no minimizing, no deflecting, just saying, hey, as it relates to my life and what God has put under my care, my job, my family, whatever it is, I will be an owner. I will take the responsibility. Even when it reflects on me in maybe a negative way, I'll take it. Because what I'm trying to get to is that if we can work in the right direction, if we can own our mistakes and then we own the responsibility for our lives, we put ourselves in a position to be people who can own the blessing too. Like everyone wants to be blessed. Churches often talk about how God wants to bless you and blessings and blessings. There's this big movement that's been going for like the last hundred years. It's like prosperity gospel, if you've ever heard of it. It's like God just wants to bless you and, and he wants you to be healthy and wealthy and cool and all kinds of stuff. Like he wants you to have all the things you want, right? And there's lots of verses in the Bible about how God wants you to have everything you want, right? There's a lot. You've read those. I'm joking. He does bless us though. That's the, that's the unique dynamic is when people take that stuff and they use it to manipulate people to give them money very often so that God will bless you, they're, they're actually twisting truth because there is truth that God wants to bless you. He does want to bless you and he has, but he wants to bless you more. But he also wants to bless you in a way that you can actually receive. And sometimes we're not ready to receive a blessing until we've owned our failures and owned enough responsibility that if the blessing came our way, we could actually own it too. We want it to be the opposite. We want to own the blessing, rent the responsibility, deflect the blame. But what if we could do it like Judah? What if we could learn from his messed up story? Own the mistakes, own the responsibility, own the blessing. Be an owner. Own it all. Own it all. There's something about that. There's something really powerful about that, especially in a, in a world like the world we live. So I wanna encourage you, challenge you, be an owner, own it all. Don't be a blamer, don't be a deflector, don't be a minimizer, be an owner. I want all of the credit and all of the blame. I'll be an owner. There's power in that, there's humility in that, and the Lord honors humility. The Lord honors humility. Scripture says that he exalts those who humble themselves. And if you're an owner and you're willing to own everything just like Judah did, the Lord will see that, he will honor that, and he will honor you. That's a promise that he makes. We're gonna wrap up by taking Lord's Supper together. We do have a baptism, by the way, which is awesome. Got a shout out for baptism. We have baptisms almost every single Sunday. That's one of the most amazing things. People are giving their life to Jesus. But as we take this, this bread and this juice, and by the way, if you walked in and forgot this, there's uh, cups toward the back. You can always go grab one. You're not messing anything up. This little mini meal is something that Jesus asked us to do. If you're new, Jesus said, when you get together, do this to remember me. And so we do this every Sunday. Sometimes we do it during worship. Sometimes it's before the message. Sometimes it's now. But it's just something that we do to remind us of what he's done. But it's amazing how much this always connects to what we're talking about. Jesus owned everything. 
Like think about this. He didn't just own his sin because he didn't have any to own. He couldn't have owned his sin, but he owned yours. Like I have a hard time owning my own mistakes. And Jesus owned everyone else's. And this meal reminds us of that. Jesus owned the responsibility of being the only one, the only one who could die as a sacrifice for our sin. No one else was worthy to pay the price for all of our mistakes. No one else would have been a worthy sacrifice, but Jesus, he owned that responsibility and it was a heavy burden. Responsibility and burden go hand in hand. Jesus prayed in the garden. If there's any way to take this away from me, do it, but not my will, Lord, yours. So Jesus, he owned the responsibility of what comes along with this meal, the sacrifice that he gave. And because of it, when Jesus died and returned, he said to his disciples that the Lord had exalted him and given him authority over everything in heaven and everything on the earth. That now his name was the name above all names. That's a blessing. So this, this idea of ownership, Jesus exemplified this. He owned your sin. He owned the weight and the burden and the responsibility of dying in our place. And it led to the greatest blessing anyone's ever been given. Every time we talk about anything that we have to do, we, we have a model to follow in Jesus and it's amazing. So with that in mind, let's pray for the bread and pray for the juice. And we're gonna do it all together today just as, as one thing. So Father, thank you for this bread. It represents your body, the body of your son, Jesus. Broken for us on the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for owning our sin so that we don't have to. But help us follow in your footsteps and be willing to own whatever does come our way in terms of our, our day-to-day lives. Lord, not the penalty that we have to worry about when it comes to you, but the responsibility that it comes living as, as responsible people in this world. Lord, help us follow in your footsteps. Thank you, Jesus, for shedding your blood. Thank you for this juice and what it means, what it represents. Your blood spilled for us on the cross. We love you. We want to honor you with our lives. We love you so much. And I pray, Lord, in your name that if there's anyone here that, that doesn't know you, that has yet to, to go all in with you and receive what, what you've given to us and what this meal represents, that they would do so. In your name we pray, amen. Let's eat the bread and drink the juice.